the Anesthesia Podcast. Welcome everyone to this exciting podcast launch of the outcomes of the 7th National Audit Project on Perioperative Cardiac Arrest. This special NAP7 author interview is the third and arguably the most exciting in our series of NAP7 podcasts. We've previously discussed the baseline papers, but here today we're going to reveal the long-awaited results of NAP7. My name is Marianne Turner and I'm an editor of Anesthesia. I'm dialing in from NAM, Melbourne. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm on, the Boon people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present. The outcomes of national audit projects have for years informed clinical practice in the UK and internationally. Today, I'm going to discuss with some of the authors the important outcomes of the seventh national audit project of the Royal College of Anaesthetists, which looks at perioperative cardiac arrest in the UK. We will be discussing two papers today. The first paper addresses epidemiology and the clinical features of the patients who were analysed in the study, and the second is related to management and outcomes. Both of these papers are free to access forever. I would like to offer a really warm welcome to Richard Armstrong, Jasmeet Soor and Tim Cook. Thank you all so much for taking the time to talk with me today. So let's start with some introductions. Richard, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your role in this study? Sure, thanks. Uh, good to be here. I'm Richard Armstrong. I'm an anaesthetic trainee in Bristol, uh, and I was one of the NAP7 fellows at the College uh, for NAP7. And Jasmeet? Hi, I'm Jasmeet. So I'm the clinical lead for NAP7 and an anaesthetist in Bristol. And Tim Cook? Yeah, I'm Tim Cook. I'm uh, an anaesthetist and intensivist in Bath. So we're all from the southwest of the UK, just by uh, happenstance. Uh, and I'm the uh, director of the National Audits at the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Excellent. Thank you all so much for being here. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to chat. Um, there's a lot of hype around the launch of this study, so let's jump right in. Yeah, I can give you some. I can give you some headlines. So, so in this this paper's focused on the the results of the 12 month registry phase of the project. We've had we've had the results of the uh, other components already. Um, and we received and analysed 881 cases of perioperative cardiac arrest. Um, so using the denominator data we get from the activity survey, that gives us an estimated incidence for perioperative cardiac arrest of around 1 in 3,000 cases, or about 3 in 10,000 anaesthetics. Um, that is, though, across the board of, of all types of anaesthetics, the rates... Uh, in elective settings and in ASA one and two patients were much lower than that. So I'm going to chip in there. Um, I think Rich is underselling um, <laughs> the paper that he's written. Um, so this, these two papers are awash with data. Um, and, and even the data in the papers is a fraction of the data, which actually is in the report, which is published um, uh, today as well. Um, and which, uh, to a certain extent, dices and slices the data and presents it in all sort of clinical settings and specialties. Um, but the, the the beauty of the National Audit Projects is that we have um, the three phases. So we have uh, the baseline where we look at preparedness and experience of anaesthetists. Uh, we have the activity survey where we where we get denominator data. And as we spoke about last week, we look at complications of anaesthesia. And then in this um, phase of the project, the registry, we look at, we reported about 930 cases of which 881 met inclusion criteria. And we're able to put those all together. And it creates uh, not only an enormous amount of data, 
but also a huge narrative around perioperative cardiac arrest. This is undoubtedly, I don't know if it's the largest, but it's certainly the most in-depth study of perioperative cardiac arrest that's ever been undertaken in the UK and elsewhere. It explores um, uh, the preceding factors um, uh, and risk factors for perioperative cardiac arrest. It uh, explores uh, the initial and um, prolonged management of those cases, their outcomes, uh, both immediately and around hospital. And it, and it looks at all the, and it, and it creates incidences, allows us incidences because we have numerator and denominator. And all those factors are enumerated in pretty much every way you could you could want. And if if we haven't presented in the way you want, you can contact us and we'll give you that information. <laughs> but, it, but, but it is awash with data. And I've been involved in, I think, five national audit projects now, and this has created far and away the most data. Uh, looking at a, at a complication, which is often the final common uh, pathway of the most serious complications. When if, you know, let's not mince words. When somebody has a cardiac arrest in the operating theater, they died and they are reanimated or resuscitated. So this is a major event when it happens to any patient. Um, it's uh, clearly important to patients. And, and the, the paper, um, Rich is hiding his light under a bushel, provides us with an enormous amount of data. Yeah, it's certainly, um, there's so much data there. It's very, very rich. Um, Jasmine, did you have anything you'd like to add to that? Any? Yeah, I'll say, I'll go back to that headline. So one in 3,000 overall, but if you're an elective patient, it's down to one in 10,000 and or much less than that. Um, if you're an ASA1, I mean, it's one in 10,000. And your risk of dying, if you have elective surgery something like one in a hundred thousand you know if you're an asa one to two patients and so you know extremely rare and the majority of those arrests are again occurring in the highest risk patients uh more often out of hours having emergency surgeries extremes of age frailer patients so so that's that's the main signal and we can also give the batting order of what the commonest causes are and what what the contributing factors are so the the number one cause for all cardiac arrest was major hemorrhage and that could either be someone coming in with major hemorrhage and going on to have a cardiac arrest or having a major hemorrhage as a complication of surgery the second most commonest cause was a severe sort of bradycardia bradyarrhythmia asystole and the third cause was cardiac ischemia and that's the headline causes but then if you look per specialty mm. they'd be slightly different and i noticed that anaesthetists gave one of the commonest causes of anaphylaxis and it didn't get into the top three for anything actually it was up there in the top five or top ten so yeah the commoner causes are you know major hemorrhage bradycardias, bradyarrhythmias, which, which may be triggered by either bagel outflow type things or, or unexplained, you know, too much anaesthetic, other factors. So if I may just come back in, I think, you know, if you want to know which, so where um, perioptive cardiac arrest is most prevalent, we can give you that. So that's orthopedic trauma. But if you want to know where it's most overrepresented, um, well, that's uh, cardiac, so, so, so cardiac arrests compared to the uh, proportion of cases in, in, um, 
in the act in the surgical caseload well that's cardiac surgery and then cardiology and then vascular surgery so very different from the highest prevalence which is orthopedic trauma and general surgery if you want to know the impact of age so old age probably not a great impact a young age a huge impact if you want to know the impact of frailty probably a 50 percent increase in the risk of cardiac arrest uh, but not as big as you might expect the incidence of of obesity, the causes, etc. And as Jazz said, the different specialties. So only vascular surgery, although hemorrhage is the most common uh, uh, underlying cause, only vascular surgery had hemorrhage as the as the highest rate. General surgery, it's sepsis. Gynecology, it's bradycardia. Cardiac surgery and cardiology, it's cardiac related issues. So it allows us to not only look at these very big numbers, but also to separate into areas of specialty. And, and, and these days, most anaesthetists don't do everything, they do their bits and pieces. So I hate to tell you there are 39 chapters in the full report <laughs> and each chapter, I know we're talking about the papers, but each chapter um, uh, provides a little egg that uh, people need to look at their areas of specialty and read those in detail. I mean, it sounds like there's, you've, you've captured hundreds of cardiac arrests. Do you think it's likely that you captured all of them? Or do you think there may be some data that's missing? Uh, I'll speak to that. So I think, um, so our definition included from the point where the anaesthetist starts hands-on contact or caring for the patient and up to 24 hours post-operatively. And I think we, we got probably most of the ones that happened in the operating room or in the anaesthetic room or early in recovery. But if they occurred on the wall or all the intensive care units, we may have missed a fair proportion of those. But with all that projects, it's often that those issues that occur at the fringes of the project are often interesting. And we did pick up a signal that, you know, patients are often sent to the wrong place, you know, considering the type of surgery they had. Right. Or and things like that. And so some of those arrests that occurred on the ward. And because when we asked people to report the arrests, we asked them to provide a narrative, we would often pick up a signal of, you know, this is what was planned, but this is what happened, you know, and things like that. So we did pick up issues that you wouldn't get in a normal tick box type exercise. And sometimes you could read that there's more to it than met the eye when you read the actual report. And I wanted to ask you about that because I see that um, each case was graded um, by a panel of experts and it was determined whether they were classified as whether the, you know, the lead up or the management during the arrest was good or poor. Can one of you maybe tell us a little bit more about that grading system and, and how that works and what that adds to the study? Well, for that, uh, for that aspect, we we were largely following the sort of established methodology of the previous national audit projects in that each case goes through this multidisciplinary expert double review. Um, and the reason we do that is, is to try, as Jazz kind of alluded to there, to try and tease out the, the narrative and, the, and, and find learning points or broader themes or things that might be areas of improvement. So that, um, that, judgment as it were that the panel make really serves just to highlight um which the cases are where there might be learning points on the positive end of the spectrum and equally we might have picked up we might pick up recurring themes of things that hadn't gone so well um but i think i think a couple of things to say on that are firstly 
for a fair proportion of cases, the, the resulting judgment was unclear. Because we go to such lengths to make the, the case reporting non-identifiable um, in terms of the patient, the anaesthetic staff, the hospital in which it occurred, when it occurred, um, often that can obscure some of the detail. And we are reliant upon what's been entered into the case in terms of how much we can interpret. So there, there's, there were cases where, unfortunately, we, we couldn't say any more about that. And I think the other thing to say is we were, by definition, we were, we were collecting the cases that where the end result was cardiac arrest. So we didn't see all of the cases that received excellent immediate intervention and actually uh, potentially cardiac arrest was averted in those cases. We, we didn't get to see those. So that may have skewed slightly the kind of uh, judgments that we were able to make overall. Marianne, it's probably worth, um, just for those people that don't know, emphasising not just the breadth of this study, but also the depth of the study. Absolutely. So breadth, the breadth we've looked at every hospital effectively that does surgery in the UK, and including a substantial but not uh, representative probably um, number of independent sector hospitals. But in terms of the depth, so the reporter for each case We'll probably have spent two or three hours providing probably three or four hundred data points um, on the cardiac arrest. Um, the review panel um, meets to review uh, the case and goes through all that data. And once they've reviewed and um, completed a structured analysis of the case, adding another 50 or 100 data points, um, will the case is then re-reviewed by, by another group and then um, the collated or, or, or consensus findings about that case are put together and then that all that data is put into the database and then when the when the cases are reviewed um, cases are grouped and uh, the summary data is taken out as well as each case then being reviewed to construct the chapters etc so there is a huge amount of depth um, and the numbers that come out of the project um, arise from a tremendous effort both at the at the coal face but also through many hours over 18, well, actually over four years, but particularly in review over two years um, by the review panel, and then subsequent, subsequently uh, about nine months of writing the project up. It's not a small undertaking. It's an amazing undertaking. No, I think um, any of us not involved in the actual project itself, um, I, I suspect would struggle to appreciate how truly how many hundreds of thousands of hours have gone into into this study <laughs> um, if just we weren't to... it out and we, we could we could probably give a number at some stage but it was a lot of hours i think one of the important things we've learned from the project though is that it's not like reviewing an airplane crash where you've got a black box yeah and you can go back to the so you we were relying on reported data and so clearly there's a lot of missing data yeah but you could get most we had this point where people write a narrative of what actually happened and what they thought happened and that that helped but we had enough people we had expertise in all the clinical areas we had some lay panel members so when we reviewed these patients we all these cases of patients having a cardiac arrest we could come up with what we thought were the important contributing factors and whether different aspects of care were good or there were good and poor aspects or wholly poor aspects. And in the majority of cases, it was mainly good 
and then good and poor, and actually quite quite a small proportion of cases where the care was poor. And when cases were poor, it was normally in events leading up to the cardiac arrest. But once cardiac arrest happens, people tend to then know what to do. You know, I think tough. that's a really common thing, isn't it? Once we've got you know, the algorithm right. to start, yeah. Yeah, but often leading up to, like in the clinical assessment or events leading up to the arrest, were not, was where the gaps were when care was just as poor. But as soon as, you know, the call was made, you know, the patients arrested, care tends to be quite good because people stuck to the guidelines, etc. And And we have highlighted areas where the guidelines fall short in the reports. You know, in like, what was the optimal dosing strategy for adrenaline? There's, you know, should you go go low early or go with big doses straight off? And the wrong things like bicarbonate and calcium, which are used a lot, but, you know, data suggests they're not associated with better right outcomes and could potentially be harmful. And then the other thing that... People thought we'd see a lot more of. We didn't see much sort of uh, extracorporeal ECPR, VA ECMO type interventions. In fact, there was only one patient outside a cardiac surgery setting who got VA ECMO. And nearly all the cases, and there were only very few, I think 17 or 18, that got VA ECMO. But there were all cases in cardiac surgery specialist centres got it either around cardiac surgery or interventional cardiology procedures so it's not very available and so most patients don't have access to it in the UK. One of the things you just mentioned um, Jasmine which I was the presence of lay people who were involved with the study um, what do you think that the outcomes or what can what can patients learn or, or what are the benefits of, of patients to this study? Well, I was going to say one thing that that they made clear to us and that we had surgeon surgeon involved as well was that ultimately it's the patient that takes the risk. And that's that's an important thing. And it's often like as we as clinicians, we think we're taking the risk. It's actually the patient who takes the risk and we're trying to help them minimise that risk and inform them about the risk. Tim may, Tim may have more to say. Yeah, I, the only other comment I'd make um, would be that uh, the lay representatives who are really important to the project, but one of the points they emphasised was they, they generally still have trust in doctors, um, but what they were very keen on was communication um, and um, both highlighting where communication uh, had not necessarily been good in all cases, but particularly the value of this sort of project for um, enabling better communication. Uh, so there are some issues around um, uh, both communication of risk, because now we know we have better, we, as a result of the project, we have better numerical data to inform the risk that we give patients, but also, um, you know, a substantial proportion of the patients who uh, had a cardiac arrest um, were frail. Um, a very small proportion of patients had DNA CPR recommendations. 
And there was also uh, a pretty mixed bag in terms of how those DNA CPR recommendations were managed. Um, there's inevitably a chapter on that, uh, or two chapters actually. Um, uh, but discussions around that and I think airing uh, these topics are important um, for the public um, and for individual patients. Absolutely. Um, now we've only got a, maybe 10 minutes left, so I just wanted to drill down into some of the more minutiae of the, of the report. Um, one of the things that I was surprised at was that anesthetic additional anesthetic assistance was requested uh, in 63% of cases. Um, why do you think, this seems relatively low to me, do you have any um, sort of thoughts into why this would be the case? I think one potential um, contributor to that is that some of these events that we uh, collected the data on that were reported were very short in duration. And often um, it was a very, very rapidly started, but also very short period of resuscitation that was required before actually um, the patient got return of circulation and things stabilized again. Um, so I think in a number of cases, that'll have, that'll have been what happened. The instinct is to start doing what you can. And actually, by the time they, someone might have gone to to formally call for assistance, actually things had had settled down a little bit again. So I think I think that's one thing that contributes to that. Um, the thing we did see in terms of calling for help was that it it did differ in terms of where cases were taking place. So one of the reasons that NAP seven looked at perioperative cardiac arrest, one of the reasons that perioperative cardiac arrest was a bit of a gap was that the existing audits in the UK of in-hospital cardiac arrest tend not to capture those that occur in theatre or in similarly highly monitored environments. And that's because they require a double two, double two or an emergency cardiac arrest pager to go out in order to be included in those audits. And often the cases that happen in, say, in main theatre, in the anaesthetic room or, or in the operating theatre itself, an emergency buzzer or some other mechanism used to summon assistance. But what we saw was that in remote locations, the use of these emergency 2222 calls was more common because those same uh, almost less formal mechanisms of calling for assistance or more immediate ways of calling for assistance, they aren't uniform across different sites where anesthesia is delivered. So that's certainly one one thing on that topic that we did that we did see in this in this study. So another factor that might be, so there isn't always somebody to call. So um, events uh, happening overnight, there may not be other people to call. Events happening in uh, small hospitals, so the independent sector, uh, there may be nobody to call. Um, and, um, you know, so, as I say, sort of out, out of hours, uh, it, there, there may be fewer people that you can call. We did find that, um, for instance, comparing the independent sector to the NHS, that fewer people attended a cardiac arrest. Um, uh, numbers, more, greater numbers may not always be beneficial, uh, but that was a, a finding of difference. Yeah, I was just to add that in quite a lot of these events, so there's been a deterioration prior to, so they had all the people they needed already there. So when the arrest occurred, they didn't need to get, yeah, get more people and. You will see that, you know, like in 73%, there was a consultant there already before the arrest occurred. And and I suspect, you know, if you've got the surgical team there, an anaesthetic team there, you've got all the right people there, you, 
you probably don't. You've got enough people, yeah. Command, control, communication is going to become more issue the more people who turn up. And I was looking at the data, and for some of our cases, we must have there must have been up to 13, 14, 15 people in the operating room by the time things got going. So I think crowd control could become a problem. Oh, absolutely. So just, just picking up on what Jazz says, I think so that, that 73% present at the time of cardiac arrest, even that undersells it. So I think it was 80, something like 87% of cases um, where, where a patient subsequently had a cardiac arrest, a, 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 a consultant anesthetist was present and uh, only in about 5% was no senior anesthetist present. Um, remembering some of these events then occurred in recovery or on the wards, a significant number. So that we are very good at matching the seniority of staff to, and even at night, 75% of cases, so this is at night, so that's between midnight and 8 a.m., 75% of cases that subsequently led to a cardiac arrest and an, uh, a, a consultant was present for induction. So that's, I, I think it's a really good um, uh, sign of uh, the involvement of, of, of consultants and other senior anaesthetists in high-risk cases. Now, in the final few minutes, I'd just um, like to hear from each of you about um, how you think this study will change practice. I'll start with you, Richard. Uh, well, I think I think for me, uh, what I one of the things I hope that will come about as a result is that it will it will change those conversations that we have, uh, and will give us, our surgical colleagues, and patients as well another resource and another another source of information to look to. Um, to help hopefully have informed and and open discussions about firstly the you know the risks that a patient is undertaking when they have these procedures and also helping us to make the best decision for the patient in front of us at, at any given time wonderful jasmine yeah i think uh, one of the things for me interested in the cessation guidelines is that they do need to be a bit more nuanced for closely monitored settings you know what are the precise triggers for starting chest compressions and starting with lower doses of IV adrenaline as opposed to the full cardiac arrest doses? And what, you know, where, you know, how you should optimally manage reversible causes, you know, early on. And, and I think anaesthetists probably need to be given some empowerment of, you know, making that call early. You want to make the call start CPR early. And because I think most of our cases, it was started early, but there's evidence of delay because people don't necessarily want to make the call. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's often the hardest part. Sure. And Tim, what, what would you like to take? Yeah, so I'm going to say three things, if I may. So firstly, I think this is a very detailed project. You really need to read the papers. The papers give you a an oversight, but actually you need to dive in and read um, uh, the report, the individual chapters. Each chapter's got half a dozen recommendations, but there's lots of learning points in addition to those recommendations. And I think there's 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 a there's a uh, an enormous amount of, of practical changes that can be made, whether it be around risk assessment, drug dosing, uh, pre-assessment, communication with patients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there are loads of practical changes. There are probably, probably up to 100 recommendations. We've got 20 key ones. Second thing is I think it's a slow burner. Um, I think um, this 
um, report will not only, and the papers will not only provide new information, but I think they'll generate uh, new questions that need to be explored. And also I think people will be dipping into this uh, resource for some time to go and we will be providing answers for some time. And then the last thing I wanted to say was really important just to thank everybody that's been involved. So um, the National Order Projects are a product of Anesthesia UK. So we have 11,000 anesthetists responding to an individual survey, but we probably have a greater number that involved actually providing data. So the projects are nothing without those individuals. So the individuals providing information, the local coordinators, um, everybody at the college and the panel, you know, people have put in a huge amount of work for what is a, what is a, a, a project which is for the benefit of patients primarily, and then secondarily for the benefit of, of, of staff. Um, uh, and without it, we can do nothing. So I really would thank very much uh, those individuals involved uh, in previous NAPs, but particularly in this NAP. Absolutely. Thank you so much for um, talking with me today. Uh, Jasmine Saw, Richard Armstrong and Tim Cook, I'm very grateful for your time. Congratulations on this amazing project and all of the papers and all of the work that I'm sure will stem from this. Um, I'd like to encourage, um, as you said, Tim, all of our listeners to take a look at both of these papers that are free to access, as well as um, obviously taking a look at the major report, all 39 chapters of it being released today as well. Um, on, the, on the Royal College of Anesthetists website, I should say, just search NAP7. Perfect. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. The Anesthesia Podcast.